This is Democracy. A podcast about the people of the United States. A podcast about citizenship. About engaging with politics and the world around you. A podcast about educating yourself on today's important issues. And how to have a voice in what happens next. Welcome to our new episode of This is Democracy. This week, we're going to discuss an issue that is uh, incredibly complex, ever-present, and one that always stirs controversy, the question of the U.S.-Mexico border. Uh, What is that border space? How should we think about it? How do we understand current controversies surrounding uh, immigration, environmental and economic issues? And really, most general of all and most important of all, how should we understand the intersection between border spaces and democracy in the United States and in Mexico? We're fortunate to be joined today by a scholar and public intellectual who's writing some of the most important work on this topic, someone with deep background in this area, Professor Samuel Truitt from the University of New Mexico. Sam, welcome to our podcast. Thank you. Professor Truitt is an associate professor of history at the University of New Mexico. He's also the director of their Center for the Southwest. He's interested in the crossings, social, cultural, and environmental that have connected the North American West and Mexico to the Americas and the world at large, who he thinks in a global framework. Uh, He's known for his work, as I mentioned before, on borderlands history. He also works actively in environmental history, the history of the North American West, transnational history, Native American and indigenous history, which we'll talk a little bit about as well, Mexican history, empires, borderlands. He covers it all. And uh, he's the author of a book I highly recommend, Fugitive Landscapes. Uh, It's a great title, by the way, The Forgotten History of the U.S.-Mexico Borderlands. He's co-editor of another book, Continental Crossroads, Remapping U.S.-Mexico Borderlands History. Sam, you clearly uh, have a lot of material to keep you busy these days, don't you? Absolutely. Too much. (laughs) Before we turn to our discussion uh, with Sam, we have, of course, Zachary Siri's scene-setting poem. What is the title of your poem today, Zachary? The Forest Next to the Trees. Let's hear about the forest and the trees. A foot apart stood the forest from the trees. I walked along the path that night. The hives filled the bees, and I could see the carrots there, apart from all the peas. Between the forest and the trees, I walked along the path that night. The ground between was dirt and sand, the sky patchless, left and right, and the borderline cracked across the floor, a black and solid blight. To the right, the trees are colored blue. To the left, the forest's red. My heart fell at the sight of it. The sun was gone and dropped like lead. And the cold blue wooden chair touched the warm and rose-like bed. Sometimes you fall backwards suddenly. Sometimes your head actually hits the ground. Sometimes you wake up to find it's all a dream. Sometimes you never get to know. Sometimes you don't live long enough to learn it isn't true. And it's really just a forest and a desert and a sunset. I, I love the environmental nature of that poem, Zachary. W- what is your poem about? My poem is really about the absurd sort of human obsession with, with making these demarcations that we think are so meaningful. But in reality, it's as absurd as saying uh, the forest is in one place and the trees are in another and that they're completely separate. And these landscapes physically, but also culturally intermingle in so many ways, they're completely inseparable. 
I love that, Zachary. The, the imagined borderland more than the real borderland. Sam, this this is in your wheelhouse. What do we really mean when we talk about a border? Zachary has deconstructed whether one actually exists. <laughs> well, that was a beautiful poem, Zachary. I love this idea of putting poetry together with history. The term I think that we use a lot these days in history is the term borderlands, which is one of these really capacious terms that seem sometimes to mean so much that it might mean nothing at all. But I think for most of us, it means the region linked closely, loosely to the U.S.-Mexican border. And the field of borderlands history is increasingly transnational in focus. And what I mean by that is that historians tend to work in the archives and the historiographies of both the United States and Mexico. But Transnational means more than just crossing borders. It means asking how histories are produced in more than one nation. And one of the things that I think is interesting in the field of borderlands history today is that scholars are increasingly moving beyond north-south binaries to trace links, for instance, across the Pacific to Asia, across the Atlantic to Africa, or following indigenous networks and borderlands in multiple directions. Sam, how is it different to think about a border space or a borderland space from what we would, you know, maybe consider? I don't know what a normal space would be—a a city or a, a countryside landscape. What what makes these borderlands, which are obviously complex in their geography and directionality, what makes them distinct, or or is there nothing that makes them distinct? No, I think their position in between. The fact that when we're in a borderlands, we're looking in multiple directions. It used to be back in the day that we were drawn to frontier history and to frontiers. I think of frontiers as more unidirectional spaces where you're, say, in an empire or a nation and you're looking outwards to the fringes. Whereas borderlands are are places where Relationships are coming from lots of different directions, and the stories that you tell in those spaces are much more open-ended than the stories that you might tell in traditional frontier histories, let's say, which tend to be ultimately stories about one nation or one empire. Right. And, and most famous, probably, right, is Frederick Jackson Turner's a Frontier Thesis, which, of course, argues that there is, a, a, as you say, almost a unidirectional American movement from east to west that defines American democracy. Borderlands is, a, is, is in a sense, a response to that, Sam? It is, in some ways. It started out, so there's a long story of what Borderlands meant to scholars and how it responded to frontier history. I think it responded most centrally to the idea that we should look at the boundaries of states differently. So by states, I mean empires, I mean nation states, and borderlands approaches tended to go to the edges of those states and and kind of ask about zones of entanglement with other states. What's Kind of interesting nowadays is that more and more scholars are bringing in non-state actors into the story, and particularly bringing indigenous history uh, into the story of borderlands. So what indigenous history does is it asks us to move beyond a state-centered view and to think about borderlands not just as dividing lines or lines in the sand, but also networks of kinship and connection there's a lot less attention to Westphalian ideas of exclusive sovereignty, 
more attention to things like plural sovereignties or local community-based protocols based on the contingencies of kinship and diplomacy. And I think once you open borderlands up that way, once you unhook it from a state-centered view, then it gets really interesting. It really kind of brings to the center a kind of plurality of voices that have made up North America. I think this so well articulates what I what I think Zachary was getting at in his poem as well that that it's it's imagined the notion that there's one side and the other. You're saying that 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 the various sides of the border intersect a lot more uh, than we normally think about it. At least when we look at a standard map, how does understanding the history, particularly of the U.S. Mexico border, help us to understand these issues and think about them in our own world today in in more effect, effective ways? That's a great question. To start with, I think Borderlands history shows us how unusual our current situation really is. These days, more often than not, we see the border as a 2,000-mile barrier, but this is really a new way of thinking about this space. And what's actually interesting is that this year marks the bicentennial of the border, which Mexico inherited from New Spain in 1821. But it actually took at least a century for fences to even start going up. And when they did go up, they weren't meant for people. So in 1911, Texas cattle fever broke out in Mexico, and the U.S. started putting up barbed wire fences to keep it from spreading north to the United States. The Border Patrol comes in 1924 to police new immigrant quotas, but these quotas apply to places like Europe and Asia and not to Mexico. Anti-Mexican sentiment was high, but the U.S. depended on Mexican workers to pick crops. And so it's not really until the 1930s and then again in the 1950s that the U.S. begins to see the border as a place to exclude and deport Mexicans as a racialized class. So I think I think the answer to your question is borderlands history brings to the surface a lot of things that we've forgotten about North America. It's fascinating, Sam, that for such a long time, from the early 19th century to the early 20th century, even the mid 20th century, the border was open, as you say, and when it was fenced, that it was fenced for animals. Does that make our current moment then almost a, a abnormal and a rejection of that history in a certain way? I, I think the question on many minds at this point is, where are we going next? And I think historians struggle with those kinds of questions. There's the saying that historians make lousy profits. I think what I think that's actually really a little bit of a cop-out because I think in in many ways we are actually pretty good at understanding the consequences of past actions. uh, And if we have been paying attention, we know that people are usually pretty bad at predicting the future. Uh, And we can actually say some things about habits of mind that distort those predictions. The one habit of mind that really kind of stands front and center when we think about the border today is something that historians call teleology, this idea that history has moved inexorably to the present. And in the case of North America, with empires ending, with frontiers closing, with the rise of nation states, with new technologies of incorporation, and a new international order based less on loyal subjects and more on citizenship. And it's really a seductive narrative. And I think that most Americans, when they think about it, assume that this is going to be the way things are moving into the future because of that, the strength of that teleology, the idea that the story has essentially kind of ended where it's supposed to end. 
But I think what history does is it expands the archive of analogies from the past to think imaginatively about how things might be in the future. And I think the first thing that we need to do as historians is break apart that teleology, uh, not necessarily assume that where we are now is a sign of where we're going to go in the near future. How can it be, though, that the border in many ways has become more and more of a, at least a physical barrier in, in our minds and, and, and in reality? And at the same time, uh, Americans and, and Mexicans are, are so much more connected culturally and linguistically in, in many ways than we have been in the past. Mm-hmm. Now, that's, that's, that's a really great question. You know, I think in some ways the story begins with the Mexican Revolution, which breaks out in Mexico in 1910. And that's really the moment where you start seeing patrols along the border. U.S. troops are sent south to the border to police against things like the smuggling of arms south uh, into Mexico to prevent violence from spilling north across the border. There's just there's this traumatic event, at least how it's seen from the perspective of the Southwest, that begins to change things, that makes Mexico look a little scary in some ways. And then as you get through the 19-teens, you have things like Pancho Villa's raid. You have World War I breaking out and this fear that Germans are colluding with Mexicans. You've got the Zimmerman telegram in 1917, which raises this whole idea that possibly the Germans will help the Mexicans get their land back. And I think once we get out of the 19-teens, that way of thinking about the border and all the anxieties and the fears connected to that is really in place and it never really leaves. So even though all of those interconnections, which have been there for many generations, continue forward as we move forward, I think it's that new track in many ways, that track of fear and of anxiety and of thinking. I think part of the issue is that we see for the first time Americans who live nowhere near the border thinking about the border and worrying about the integrity of the nation and worrying about threats to the nation. And it becomes this abstract kind of thing that never really goes away. Right. It's interesting that it's it's so connected also to state building, as you say, uh, yeah. and, and all of the assumptions that come around that assumptions about citizenship and territoriality, uh, that people have to be from a particular place to be citizens. Uh, I always remind my students that until the late 19th century, people did not carry passports. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a very uh, also a state-centered late 19th century creation. Sam, I, I know you've also thought deeply about the earlier history of this border area, even before there's a United States. And uh, in the spirit of uh, expanding our archive and providing ourselves as we look to the future with a deeper understanding of alternatives from the past, alternatives from the past that might help us think about a different future, uh, what should we know? This is a big question, obviously, but what should we know uh, when we think about these issues today about the earlier history, pre-19th century history of the border? Right. That's a great question. I mean, I think the first thing that we should know is that the U.S.-Mexico border wasn't always where it is today. So when Mexico becomes an independent nation in 1821, it inherits a border that was established two years earlier in 1819 by something called the Adams-Onis Treaty between the United States and New Spain. And this border 
really kind of stays in place for about a generation uh, after Mexico becomes an independent nation. It uh, runs east from the Pacific along the 42nd parallel, which is the border between California and Oregon today. Uh, It runs to about what is today Wyoming, where it drops south to Colorado, east to Kansas, south to East Texas, east to Arkansas, and then south to the Gulf of Mexico near present-day Lake Charles, Louisiana. Uh, And because it ran mostly through land controlled by native peoples, it was also mostly a cartographic fiction. Um, The way that most people knew the border was through ports of entry. And I think that's the second thing uh, that's worth noting is that for generations, Americans didn't think about uh, the border as a dividing line so much, but rather a series of border crossing nodes. Um, And there's two roads that lead into Mexico in 1821 from the United States. Uh, One of those runs west from Louisiana on what was called the old San Antonio Road to Nacogdoches, Texas. Uh, And the other crossed uh, west from Missouri on what was called the Santa Fe Trail to a border crossing in southeastern Colorado today uh, at a place called Bent's Fort. And this is about 300 miles northeast of Santa Fe, which is where many of these folks uh, were headed. And I think... So one of the things that is important to keep in mind is that the border between the United States and Mexico um, becomes something that people think about in the context of new trade relations. So the borders there is something uh, to be crossed. And if you're not crossing it on one of these inland ports of entry, uh, you're getting on a boat and you're crossing into Mexico and Galveston Bay or uh, Monterey and California uh, and so forth. And it's interesting what you said about passports, because in fact, uh, if you're crossing one of these points uh, in the 1830s, uh, you have to have a number of documents with you. Um, You have to show your goods. uh, You have to have a manifest that shows what goods you're bringing with you because all of that stuff is liable uh, for duties. Uh, You have a passport and you show a passport. Um, And then you arrange for additional documents if you're taking your goods further into Mexico, which by the 1830s and the 1840s, many American uh, merchants were. Um, so it's so in the early days, passports actually do matter quite a bit. Uh, it's these kind of pathways uh, more than the border itself. And this actually continues after the war with Mexico uh, when the border takes the shape that it does uh, today. So after the war between the United States and Mexico in 1853, um, the United States completes the annexation of half of the territory of Mexico, it draws a new border, but the same logic is going to prevail. Uh, People will continue to experience this border largely through ports of entry. Uh, So it's less of a line in the sand and more of a network of border crossing nodes. And uh, this has come up a few times. Uh, We often think about these issues as U.S.-Mexican issues, but of course there's a large indigenous community of different peoples all around the border. What what role do they play? How should we understand their historical place in these discussions? Mm-hmm. Now, that's a, that's a really great question. Um, I think today when we think of Native peoples and borderlands, we might think about, for example, the Tohono O'odham of Southern Arizona, uh, whose homeland was cut in two by the border in the 1850s and whose sacred spaces have been despoiled most recently by Trump's border wall. Or we might think of groups like the Yaqui Indians who come north from Mexico as workers and political refugees. Uh, or if you saw the movie Lone Star, for example, you might think of refugee Seminoles and Kickapoos 
uh, who fled prior U.S. removal efforts into Mexico after 1850 and whose Mexican descendants today continue to cross north uh, in pursuit of wage labor. But I think the limitation of thinking about Native peoples and, and the border that way is Native communities um, are largely passive. Uh, they're either divided or they're displaced uh, by U.S. border making. But I think it's important to remember that indigenous peoples also played an active role in U.S. border making. So, for example, the first U.S. land border with Spanish America is mapped in 1799, and it's mapped between uh, Georgia and Spanish Florida, in part to weaken the Creek Confederacy, which dominated the lands in between uh, the U.S. and New Spain. Uh, likewise, Native nations are going to dominate those early borderlands on the Great Plains uh, around the Santa Fe trade. Uh, so, for example, in the 1830s, the United States and Mexico are going to sign a treaty of amity, commerce, and navigation. But the only way that merchants are actually going to get from Missouri to New Mexico is by negotiating treaties and giving gifts to the powerful indigenous nations in between. And you can come all the way down to the creation of the current day border in 1848 with the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, which gets amended slightly uh, in 1853. Um, and in this, the United States gets Mexico to agree to the new border only by promising to control Apache raids, which it's absolutely unable to do for almost half a century. And in the end, it's interesting, the United States and Mexico, in order to uh, defeat the Apaches, uh, who have set up refuge in the Sierra Madres, have to agree to disrupt their Westphalian sovereignty by negotiating a reciprocal crossing treaty uh, in the 1880s to allow binational armies uh, to work in tandem to expel the Apaches. So from the perspective of Native American history, Geronimo's resistance comes at the end of a longer story of European border making as a practice of settler colonialism, which is almost constantly destabilized by indigenous power. And one of the many insights from that really uh, thoughtful uh, perspective is that uh, these indigenous peoples are, they, they are uh, actors with a great deal of power and influence for quite some time after 1848, that they're, they're crucial actors uh, moving forward and, and often left out of the history, although they might, might be some of the key actors, is, I, is what I'm hearing you say. Right. No, absolutely. And, and I think, you know, in, in many ways, ways um, some of the most interesting ways of thinking about borders today uh, is coming from indigenous activists and indigenous scholars um, who are drawing on their own history uh, of border making and the ways that they thought of borders to imagine new border futures, uh, if you will. Um, so, for example, uh, Peoria scholar Liz Ellis at NYU um, is a scholar of what we would call the early colonial period. Um, and she's uh, studying relationships among Natchez in smaller nations in the lower Mississippi Valley. And she's looking at the ways that the Natchez pull in these smaller nations as kin rather than rejecting them as others. Uh, and she's thinking about relations of plural overlapping sovereignty as both practical and ethical modes of human entanglement. Um, and so I think it's, it's not only that indigenous history continues down to the present day, but indigenous scholars and activists, I think, are giving us some of the most uh, intriguing ways of thinking about the past uh, to approach um, the future of the border and borderlands differently. 
Well, and it, it seems to me, Sam, that in, in addition to the indigenous scholars, there's so many actors uh, around these borders who continually defy what states expect of them to do, right? Whether they're refugees, whether they're people conducting uh, business on both sides of the border. And, and one of the struggles, it seems to me, is to adjust our thinking to the reality of what is really going on mm-hmm. around these border spaces. How would you advise our listeners who, who care about democracy and I think care about uh, various communities around the borders, how should they really understand what's going on there rather than what they are told is happening in these spaces? Right. No, that's a great question. I mean, I think in part, it's a limitation of the way that we think about legal institutions or we think about things like citizenship uh, today. Um Early modern scholars like Lauren Benton, for example, has really kind of showed how empires um, really thrived th- by thinking about uh, sovereignty and legal relationships in a kind of pluralistic sort of way. Um, so showing how empires navigate and tolerate multiple legal regimes in a world that's kind of full of holes in their own power. And then the story seems to go uh, that nation states come along, uh, they're able to territorialize and mark out space in new kinds of ways, and those holes in their power in, in those older kind of imperial holes begin to, to vanish. But in fact, you can still see these kind of uh, plural legal forms uh, alive today. I mean, uh, migrants, for example, um, or, or indigenous peoples uh, or refugees um, are held up to different legal standards and often are treated within very different legal uh, parts of the system um, than uh, straight up citizens. And yet I think what we've forgotten is, um, I think what most Americans have forgotten is just how legally plural our system still is. And I think what we need to do possibly is uh, to kind of embrace the notion of legal pluralism uh, and embrace how it disrupts binaries between core and periphery, between empire and borderlands, between success and failure, um, offering a different foundation between the poles of citizen rights on one hand and human rights on the other hand to envision pragmatic and just futures in a border crossing world. So I think that pluralism is one part of it. I think the other thing I would like to tell your listeners is some of the most compelling ways of thinking about borderlands takes historical scale and specifically spatial scale seriously. It's not just that we're thinking about borderlands from a broad view of how oceans or continents are divided up, but we can drill down to the level of families or households, or uh, we can go along the border and look at relationships between patrons and clients. Uh, And it's often at more intimate scales that people learn most effectively how borders actually work, uh, how to rethink borders, uh, how to live alongside one another. Um, and here I'm thinking of a piece I read in the Washington Post back in 2017, in which Syrian refugees were seeking a new home in Trump country in Nebraska. And what was interesting about the article is that the Nebraskans strongly supported efforts to keep the company safe, to strengthen borders, but they also wanted to, quote, show their heart uh, for strangers fleeing terrorism. And the article noted that Nebraska had taken in more refugees per capita uh, than any other state. And I think that's a really useful way of thinking about things. If we can think of borderlands as intimate spaces that are as likely to be in the heartland 
as well as at the edges of our communities, then I think there's a richer historical archive we can draw on. Just the history of how villagers took in strangers in many different places in the past and how new relations of kin were made from one local borderland to the next. To my mind, I think those are probably the most powerful historical analogies uh, in thinking about the border, but they really kind of force us to think at really small, intimate scales about uh, human relationships. Well, and I think that's so important, Sam, when we're confronted today with children, for example, uh, who are uh, held at the border without their parents and uh, the intimate suffering that they're that they're enduring and our watching it and and not knowing what to do in some right. respects um, how should we how should we address that issue in this historical perspective yeah that's a it's a really good question I mean I've been thinking a fair bit about that I mean it's puzzling to me uh, that we shouldn't protest more loudly uh, the destruction the, the the kind of the dismemberment of these families I mean on one hand it's just inhumane and, and it's horrific. But I think on the other hand, if the concern that Americans have is that uh, these outsiders are going to have a hard time integrating uh, into the nation, then history tells us that we should really be keeping those families intact because it's often through family structures um, that uh, kind of peaceful, orderly incorporation of outsiders as insiders has always taken place. Um, I think in many ways, the disruption of households as a kind of scare tactic, if you will, uh, really, in a sense, goes fully against um, what many people would like uh, relationships between Americans and their neighbors to look like, which is uh, not tainted by fear uh, or dissuasion, but actually um, to imagine a kind of a, a nation in which present-day immigrants uh, can become Americans in ways that we imagine that the older school immigrants in the past did. And I think family, I think, is just absolutely crucial to achieving those ends. It makes total sense, and it and it refers back to a point that's that's really been a thread through all of your superb comments, which is just the the networks that actually connect people across these spaces and how the spaces are actually less divisions than they are uh, nodes, as you said, of connection. And if we think about families, we think in those terms rather than if we think about uh, individuals as criminals. Uh, And I think that's an important uh, distinction and an important way in which our discourse probably takes us away from understanding what's really, really happening. Sam, Sam, I, I, I have to ask you just as, as sort of devil's advocate, what, what do you say to those who, uh, I, I guess, using the fear tactics that you were describing, uh, argue, well, we just can't let everyone in. And uh, if we just let everyone in, all these bad things will happen. Uh, what is your response to that? My response to that is, I understand that. I don't think that fear is going to go away. I think as we move into the future and we start seeing more people displaced by warfare, by extreme political regimes, by climate displacement, um, those fears are just going to get turned up. And I think it's I think it's important to acknowledge uh, those fears, to acknowledge that behind them are some very real dynamics of how do you share resources with people that you don't know very well. I mean, I think if there's if I had any one solution for that to at least get people to think in more thoughtful ways about this. 
I think I would invest money in ways that um, high school kids and college kids would spend more time abroad. Um, just get out of the United States, go to other countries, understand what it means themselves to cross a border into another place, go through the culture shock uh, that happens, kind of put things back together as you get on the other side of that culture shock, make connections with you know one, two, a dozen, hundreds of people uh, in the place that you go to, and then come back home with that kind of personal archive. I think in many ways that is the sort of thing that's going to temper uh, those kinds of very realistic fears, to give people kind of tangible ways of imagining how, if strangers come into their own communities, they might be able to incorporate them in a kind of humane and sustainable way. Zachary, what do you think? Um, I know you care quite a lot about what happens at the border. We're not far from the border here in in Austin, Texas. In fact, Uh, we think we're far from the border, but we're not. We're part of the borderland in many ways. Um, uh, Does what Sam says make sense? Does it resonate with you and and your conversations with with other young people who care about these issues? Yes, I I definitely think it does. I think part of the problem is that we have have such a large degree of interaction uh, culturally, uh, physically, economically, but we don't really understand each other and we don't understand how those interactions take place. So I think that this idea that we need to we need to move, literally move beyond borders, move across borders in our lives and experience things from different perspectives from the other side of the border, I think that's really poignant and that's really important. I think that makes a lot of sense. Sam, we always like to close on a historically informed, optimistic point of view. <laughs> and, and, and you've taken us there, though, with, with some of your recommendations. Uh, what makes you most hopeful right now? Because I, I think we're bombarded with too much uh, negativity and negative news about border space. It's almost as if the border is another uh, code word for warfare. So what do you see that's helpful? How would you push back against those negative associations? You know, I think what's most hope, what I find most hopeful is the fact that the new generation and probably the generation after that is wired and will continue to be wired to the the wider world in really unanticipated ways that folks can kind of sit down on TikTok or YouTube and they can access uh, other places and they can kind of make sense of that uh, with conversations uh, among others in their generation who aren't necessarily grounded in the same kind of geography of fear, if you will, that many of those in our generation were raised in. And I think what encourages me about that is um, the story might not necessarily uh, end the way that we think it's going to end. I think anything that points us towards open-ended anticipated futures also points us towards potential uh, and opportunity to do the right thing, even though we might not really be able to understand at this point or predict at this point what that might be. I love that perspective, Sam. I, I think you're right. I think that there is a different generational point of view. And and I think it's so important for people to experience borders, not as fearful places, but as creative spaces, as, as geographies, not of fear, as you said, but geographies of hybridity, geographies of connection, 
geographies of experimentation. And I think your your comments today really inspire us in that way. Borders can be productive for democracy. They don't have to be fearful fences to limit democracy. Right. And I think, again, to get back to the indigenous perspective on these things, we have to always remember that borders are also about connection and about making kin uh, with peoples who, you know, may start out as strangers, but are going to become something different. I love it. I love it. Sam, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and learning with us today and for showing us how relevant this history is to our contemporary debates about the border spaces. Well, thank you for having me. And Zachary, thank you as always for your inspiring poem and for your comments as well. And thank you most of all to our listeners. Thank you for joining us for this week of This Is democracy. This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts ITS Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harris Codini. Stay tuned for a new episode every week. You can find This is Democracy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher.